Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, I'm so excited to bring you this conversation with storyteller Alexis Roan. Alexis Roan, affectionately known as Lex, is a writer, producer, artistic theologian, and revolutionary artist devoted to candidly exploring the power of truth when dressed in story. Her specialty is true first-person narratives told by adults for adults through her company Truth Meets Story, LLC. Lex holds a Master of Arts in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, and a Bachelor of Journalism and Public Relations degree from the University of Texas at Austin. The host of the weekly Faith and Adult Storytelling series, Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine at Vespers, Lex is currently residing in Raleigh, North Carolina. In this episode, we talk about vulnerability and the importance of storytelling in a judgment-free zone, developing a story for a particular audience, storytelling as a means to expand empathy, create solutions, and fulfill Alexis's mission to create a more compassionate world. And of course, it's chock full of stories. Before we jump in, I want to mention some upcoming events. Alexis is offering an intro to storytelling workshop titled Five Stories Every Brand Must Tell. Workshops are offered on April 29th, April 30th, and May 1st. Information and ticket links are in the show notes and on alexisrone.com. Then on May 22nd, she will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the release of her first book, Premature Pleasures, during a special edition of Jesus, Jazz, and Dessert Wine at Vespers at 5.30 p.m. You'll hear her talk about Premature Pleasures and Jesus, Jazz, and Dessert Wine during this episode. Again, check out the show notes for information. There's so much in this episode to inspire you and make you laugh. Enjoy. Hi, Alexis. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tamara, for the invitation to get on the soapbox. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> to speak with you. I've been following you on your social medias for a while. You're such an inspiration, and I'm just Aww. I'm just delighted. So, as the storyteller extraordinaire, I wonder if you would be comfortable opening with a story for us today. Yes, my specialty, my brand is true first person narratives. But when I was prepping to teach at a storytelling institute in Phoenix, Arizona, it was at a community college, I had to take a class. And the professor started off with, uh, she always says at the beginning of her very first lecture, start of the semester, the stories you tell will tell on you. Every workshop that I facilitate, I start that same way. I, I say that every story you tell will tell on you. And then that makes some people like, oh my God, I need to, <laughs> to protect my brand. But my brand is found in this fable that I'd like to open with. And I, again, I don't, my, my brand is true first person narratives, but we had to learn how to tell folklore fables. We had to, le- to learn all of it. And I found my signature fable. And here it is. Um, it says, Truth was walking through the village. And every time Truth walked through the village, the mothers would grab their children, cover their eyes, race them into the house. The old men would scoff. The young men would point and laugh. This happened every time Truth walked through the village. Truth decided, that's it. I'm, I'm abandoning this village. And so Truth disappears into the forest. 
And that is where truth meets story. Dressed in story, they return and suddenly there's a big crowd. Everyone wants to listen. Well, why now? No one likes a naked truth. I named my practice Truth Meets Story uh, LLC because I wanted to demonstrate the power of story and specifically how story um, expands our empathy, our understanding of each other. We all have histories, locations. We have things that we've been taught. We have things that we've absorbed. We also have a lived reality. And I think that one of the things that no one can ever counter is those things that we have experienced, our lived realities, our stories. And I believe that in our stories are the solutions that are necessary for all of us to engage the common good. So I am extremely excited to be able to make my living telling stories and helping others to tell their stories, because in that way, What I'm actually doing is being about my mission to create a more compassionate world. You focus on adults telling stories to adults. Yes. Why? Why why adults? Because that the children market is cornered. It is saturated. (laughs) The seven the the storytellers for the seven year olds is like that's a crowded hub. Uh, but but story is the it's the hope chest for all of humanity and it has You know, everyone remembers story time as a child being one of the like most favorite times in, you know, in in your class or in school or, you know, so we remember stories and they're so extremely profound. When you go to church, the preacher, the pastor is telling stories. I remember far more stories that were told in different sermons a lot of times than I do scripture. Now, I did end up going to seminary, so of course I know more scripture now, but what was the lasting legacy were the stories that people told. And what uh, I remember and what resonates most with me is how some of those stories are stories of like great victory, but the ones that I really enjoyed were the ones where they for real, for real messed up and it didn't end everything. If adults need to hear, we don't need to hear anything else. It is simply this, that those things that we have done, they don't have to define us. They have immense value to so many people who are still in the middle of what you have already more than conquered or overcome. It is easier to tell that lesson in a story. Adults need to hear that time. We need to have a space where we can step away from, you know, the fables and the folklores that are good for our children, the little children's narratives. We need to hear from each other. So that is why I specifically focus on adults. The 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 one group is already like that market is cornered. And the the stories for adults, currently it, it it's wide open, which is why I'm training other adults to tell those stories because I only have like a certain number of stories that I can, <laughs> can tell. I need to pull in other people to uh, what I call uh, give us those solutions, but to package those solutions and stories because we can hear you a lot better in the story. And so part of your work is helping people tell their own stories. That feels kind of scary, vulnerable. Oh, well, here's the thing. Once I convince people that vulnerability is currency, then they began to hear me a lot easier. You see, we're not attracted to the superhero, superheroine stories. In fact, my mother, she is a part of a generation that is very private mm-hmm. <laughs> about the lived reality. And so I am such an anomaly to her. 
But one time I, um, she happened to be visiting me uh, when I was facilitating a workshop, I was living out West and it was to a group of high school girls. We, we were wrapping up our, I think it was like a six week session. And mom happened to be there on that final deal. And I told mom, I was like, mom, I'd like for you to address the girls uh, and whatever, whatever you want to say to them. Like you're going to, you know, just make it, you know, encouraging, but it has to be just what, what, you know, just come from the heart. Like, what, what are you feeling when you, once you enter that space? And so mom begins to tell them the story about how she got pregnant with me in college and how that ended her, you know, her college career. It's like, now I've got to go to work. And then she talked about being a Christian and being unwed and having this baby and not really knowing how she felt about my father. And so she uh, married him because the shame of being unwed was just too much to bear. And then he became abusive. Uh, and then he created a space where we needed to leave him. And then she said, and when we left him, I had a job with uh, with one organization and I kept working hard. I kept doing my part. And then I got a promotion and then I got another promotion. And then they sold my company and I continued to retain, you know, these opportunities because I had built such a positive reputation by my work ethic that they just wanted to keep me on. And so then she ends her talk with, so I need you to know that your hard work will be rewarded. So continue to work hard, continue to, you know, be excellent in the way that you show up in the world, everywhere you show up, be excellent and be hardworking. So when she was done with her story, first hand uh, came up and the little girl says, well, when did you know that, uh, that your, your, your ex-husband was abusive? Like what was the first situation that happened? Second hand went up. Did you know that like, uh, like, uh, that it couldn't get better? Like, could you have stayed? Not one person asked about work ethic right. and about doing the excellent thing because they knew mm. that. They already have that unlocked. What they did not understand in their particular situation is how can they identify abuser, an abuser? Or how can they, or how can they be assured that an abuser can't change? That was the story that they wanted to deal more with. And mom answered all of their questions. And so I said with her at the end of that, uh, at the end of our time, mama, vulnerability is currency. Like they want to know that crazy place that you've been and how you look absolutely nothing like anything that you've been through. So they trust that there is uh, like something good on the other side of it, that it all doesn't have to be destructive to your entire life. So, yeah, so vulnerability is currency. And I, you know, and, and again, I have to model that. And then I, cu- I curate spaces for them to to create that. And I, I, I help them to understand that not every story is for every platform. But just because it's not for every platform does not mean that it it's not for any platforms. And so in my workshops, I help them to understand that, like, you are who you are. And every story uh, has a particular audience and every story has a particular outcome. So let's try to figure out exactly which story you need to tell for this particular audience. And I'm going to help you with format and with memorizing the story and knowing what parts are in service to the universal audience and what parts you can, you know, withhold. You don't have to tell everything. It depends on kind of where you want um, to, to take the audience. Where do you want them to go? 
at the end of this. So I don't get as much pushback as you think. In fact, what typically happens is someone will sign up for the workshop because their friend or their spouse has signed up and they're like, I don't really have a story or like, I'm, I'm just this boring person. I kid you not. Every time the person who starts off that way ends up being the, the, the showstopper. Right. Like when we have our, like our closing uh, story slam. Every time the person who walks in saying, I don't have a story, ends up being the one that the rest of the workshop participants end up giving a standing ovation to. So I'm, I'm just thinking out loud right now. I wonder if there's a resistance to us thinking of ourselves as the star of our own lives. We are the main player in the movie of our lives. And so there is a story yes. there. There are many stories there yes, that there we are. can tell. You mentioned that you model vulnerability, and I've seen that in the mm -hmm. stories that you share. Was there a particular moment when you thought, all right, I need to put myself out there so that other people can <laughs> do that too? Or is this something that you've always done? Oh my gosh. No. So here's what's so funny. Yes. I showed up on the scene 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years in May. 20 years ago, I released a book called Premature Pleasures. It is the story of an 11-year-old who looks like she's 15 or 16, hangs out with a group of 15 or 16-year-old girls one summer in an apartment complex in Houston, Texas. Now, my purpose for writing this book was to attract reluctant reading teens and preteens within an urban context. I wanted them to simply turn the page and then turn the next page and then turn the next page. I ultimately wanted to create readers. I wanted to pull them into the reading family. And what I needed to do was to write a story that looked like them, a story where they knew the character, they knew the setting, they knew the language, and I needed to not be afraid uh, to go there. Now, because I am a person for whom God is particularizing the person of Jesus Christ. I embrace mystery. The answer, I believe, a lot of times with most integrity is I don't know. I show up even as a writer of this book called Premature Pleasures in that space. I want my main character to be unaffiliated with faith. And then the person who comes in and models love, joy, happiness, possibility is a young woman from a church down the street who's doing these Jesus at the clubhouse meetings uh, in my main character's apartment complex. And so she's basically going to pull her in by just kind of letting her be herself. And so in the end, my main character who has been out there and you're watching her go deeper and deeper into this craziness, she does make a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ after all of the madness, everything that's happened. Now, what's interesting is that my dilemma was when you have like Team Jesus people, mm -hmm. <laughs> they need more sanitized centers. <laughs> and when you have uh, people who are not Jesus people, they can handle the truth. They're not really looking for Jesus in this. And so I had these two groups that were trying to get me to separate one from the other. And I realized that I was going to do the courageous thing of telling this story in the way that I saw it and embracing my full on reverent irreverence and the ways that I see life is messy and it's not linear and our stories are not, you know, these nice little uh, dotted lines that we can trace. And it has this nice little, you know, cute little pattern. That's not what it looks like. 
And I needed to show up as a writer. I needed to show up as a storyteller. And I needed to show up as someone who said, okay, listen, I am confident that my ultimate goal is good Mm -hmm. to pull them into the reading family. There are things that are going to happen in their lives down the road that the solutions are going to be found in a book. If they declare at 15 or 16 that they are non-readers, then by 36, 46, they have cut themselves off from all of the solutions that will be found simply by them being readers. I could foresee the need for them to have a superior life, a much better life, if they would simply pick up a book. And I needed to give them something early on that would help drive that home. So you read all of the Alexis Roan books cover to cover, and then you begin to search the library shelves for other books. And all of a sudden, you are no longer declared a non-reader. The religious community did not like my unsanitized centers. The public arena had problems with the, the fact that she chose to become a follower of Christ because the person that I chose to introduce her to introduced her to what was an, uh, like an important piece and component for her own life. It is an important component for my own life. So I needed to show up in that way. And so that was my first um, experience with vulnerability because I got rejected. I got the, the people with whom uh, in my, my faith community, there was a whole big hullabaloo there. And it was uh, so destructive <laughs> to my spirit that once I moved out of that city, I did not join another church for at least six years. I would regularly attend one. I would sit on the balcony or the back pew. <laughs> I did not want to be close to people, but I would not change a thing. And now that the book is about to, uh, we're about to have a 20th anniversary celebration of premature pleasures in May, I'm gearing up for that right now. I had to go back and reread it. (laughs) And the only change that I made was to my use of the N word because it was set within an urban context. And I wanted to practice fidelity to that when I wrote it 20 years ago. I'm like, what in whatever way my characters would use this, this word, I let them use it, even though I don't personally say that word. I replace the N word with the word motherfucker. Now, I feel like motherfucker is just, a, a, it's, it, it's not quite as culturally nuanced. Everybody can be a motherfucker. Um, <laughs> so uh, so, so that's, that, that's the change that I made. But uh, when I went back and I reread this book, the only change I made was I removed the N word because I have found other equally demeaning words that a, a young person would say, and it doesn't sound corny or hokey, it's still practicing fidelity. Uh, to my originally intended audience. That's the only change I made. Everything else stands pat, even if it makes other people uncomfortable. It is still true to, you know, to the context and to the story. That was my first test of with vulnerability. So when you put out a book called Premature Pleasures for young readers, like you <laughs> for like my two or 12 year olds on, that's where it began with me because they also wanted to know, well, why would you do it that way? Well, I have a story. Let me give you context. Let me let me put the let me put the background on it. Uh, let me talk with you about what it feels like to be judged just because you hang out with boys, not doing anything. Uh, it looks a certain way, so you want me to be concerned about optics. Uh, let me tell you what it feels like to have uh, to have to live my life trying to alter what I do based on optics instead of just living in truth. So it's been this crazy but wonderful cycle of me getting to the understanding of how to dress truth and story 
uh, as opposed to just doling out naked truths because that, that's just harder to hear. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful that you took a leap with that book. You took a leap into yourself to tell the yes. story that you knew that people wanted to hear, sort of circling back to the questions that your mother received. You know, we yes. there are things that we want to know about that people don't talk about. And those stories are crucial to our surviving and thriving. Yes. And I and so I'm just really <laughs> grateful that you took that journey. I mean, some of the things that I think about when I'm about to do something that feels that feels a little scary and a little exposed is that I've done this before and I've survived. Yeah. And Absolutely. so this is a survivable event. Yes. <laughs> Once you do it, you can do it again. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think even the ways that we survive and the ways that we thrive, move into thriving, they're not linear. They're not, it's not a monolith. And the only way that we know about all of the options and all of the ways that let our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues have survived and are now thriving is through the story. It is literally the most palatable way to say this. But let me also um, add this, uh, this little caveat because I always, I, I forget this particular piece. So one of the things that's important to note is that I did not sign up, like I did not have in my, my vision board, I'm going to be a storyteller. That, that, that's not how it uh, worked. As a matter of fact, uh, when I, that was the first of my family to graduate from college. And what I wanted to do was to make money. My vision board said, I want my own office. I want an expense account. I want, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, by, you know, mid twenties, I had that. And it was so extremely empty. And I'm like, okay, so I've got this. So the rest of my life is just going to be about, you know, offices and expense accounts. <laughs> so I had this sort of crisis of, 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 of experience. And, um, but I'm still thriving and I am still doing well in my career. I was in human resources at the time. And I was on a panel and the HR director for a very prominent, like, fortune a uh, 100 company was also on this panel and she was taking down all of my information. And then she raced to me after she says, I need, uh, I need to set up a meeting with you. So I meet with her. She offers me a job to come into work for this, this particular, this, this organization. And I thought that I had hit the pinnacle. Like I was, I think I was 27, 28 at the time. And I just knew that my life was on like a, powerful, like I, like my, my trajectory, it was all good. It was all bright. So on the first day of employment, I go to the new employee orientation. Now this company was so big, so fancy that their new hire orientation was not done in their human resources conference room. Like that's where everybody else does it. They did it at a resort, uh, like a five-star hotel around the corner from the, the corporate headquarters. And so we had breakfast on fine china and linen cloths and silver. It was super fancy. And then one of the executives, he's at the mic and he's telling us, you are working for uh, a company that only hires the best of the best. You need to know exactly where you are. And so you continue, like there is a future for you here. You got here because you're the best of the best. Continue to prove that you're the best of the best and everything is going to work well. This was January, 2000, first Wednesday, January, 2000. Uh, when we're done with the new hire orientation, 
I drive my, at the time I was driving a, a, a candy apple red uh, convertible Mustang and I pull it into the corporate garage. I'm flanked by a dozen silver Porsches. So I immediately feel diminished. Uh. My little American, <laughs> my little American sports car. And I'm literally flanked by dozens of silver Porsches. And then I go into the lobby. Uh, there's there are marble floors, there are floor to ceiling windows, uh, and there is only one piece of art in there, and it's their logo. This organization was Enron North America. <gasps> now, most people, when I tell this story, I can tell like the generation based on how you respond. <laughs> The millennials, when I say Enron, if some of them are like seven, they're like, oh, yeah, I saw a Netflix, you know, documentary on that situation. They have no clue how crazy was the situation at Enron and how it was 9-11 that took it off of the news cycle. I walked into Enron North America and I promise you, Tamara, I thought that my life and my career and my money was set. And it was there that everyone else is telling me about what I can do with them, what I can do with them. My, 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 my bullshit detector was up, but this is what happened. It was on my first day, walk in, everybody's paid, everything is over the top, walk into the elevator and um, my office is, I think it was on the seventh, 27th floor. And there is a, uh, a plaque with their four core values that are written. It's, up, it's posted in the elevator. Four core values, two of them, the core, the, the core values were ethics and integrity. Mm-hmm. I get off of the elevator. I go into my office and I'm stopped. Like I'm, I'm going down this long hall and uh, one of my new colleagues, this male, he stops me and he says, your name is Alexis, right? And I was like, yes. And he says, and you're coming over from, and he names the investment firm that I had just left. And I said, yes. He said, uh, well, I'm about to test your value as a, um, as a recruiter. Did you bring the investment firm's employee directorate? And I said, no, it's online. And he thought about it for a second and then he moves out of the way. I turn the corner and I kid you not, there is a, to my right, there is a library of corporate directories oh my goodness. that other um, recruiters have brought over. And then I thought ethics and integrity are two of your core values. And here you are, you don't even have this information under lock and key. At that point, I realized that, okay, I need to be very careful because I am a person who is guided by principles. So if you say that this is what you are about, I'm looking for the evidence. Well, I have now seen the evidence that clearly that is not what you're about. So I need to tread carefully. And then eventually I begin to think, well, why do I have to tread here at all? So I ended up leaving Enron a year and some before um, the actual topple. And I figured the topple would come simply because their practices did not align with their principles. And I, since then, have been very careful to encourage everybody. Your intuition is, 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 a, is a, a good guide and it is going to lead you into some amazing things because people who believed in the silver Porsches and all of the fanciness that was there, they lost their jobs and were told, like, you got 30 minutes to clear out your desk you got a check for $4,000. They lost their retirement. 
Uh, they lost their like everything. And, and people who had been there for over 20 years, many of them were taking their annual bonuses and reinvesting it in Enron stock. Right. So it was messy. It was bad. But I saw that their principles did not match their practices on my first day. And I made a choice to listen to that. And then I made a choice to gamble on myself. And so I left Enron April of 2000. And I then uh, began to work exclusively on writing premature pleasures. And I released it a year and a month later. Wow. That is yeah, that is incredible. <laughs> I think I'm so- I think I'm still catching up to the <laughs> to the revelation there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust your intuition. Yeah, it's it's guiding you into amazing places and I get that we all want to know in advance and we want to to declare and to decide, but I am trusting that the mystery of all things good is leading us into, you know, greener pastures, into spaces where the common good is served, where there is more than enough for all of us. That there's no lack, that there's no scarcity. There really is abundance and we all have a part to play in making sure that everyone survives and thrives. We, we, we need each other. It's such a good illustration of how we can take the given circumstances of our lives and pull meaning from them. So circumstances are just circumstances, but the power is in right. how we interpret them and the message yeah. that kind of comes through the story we want to tell about those circumstances. I think I heard That's you good. tell a story about changing your story. I think it it was talking about your relationship with your father and you Mm. wanted to change the story around him to kind of help yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And it was, I had, uh, yeah, on a father's day, uh, well, it was, it was interesting. He and I had had a fractured relationship since 95, August of 95. Gosh, it was March or April of 1992. Uh, my older sister Deidre died suddenly and unexpected. And it threw my dad into a crazy space and uh, he did not grieve well. He was not a person of faith. You know, the whole, the rest of the family was and he was the only one who wasn't. And so he, three years later, August of 95, calls me drunk. You know, it was, it was bad. It was a bad conversation. And I did not. I did not represent well at all. Um, and I also, I did not know at that time. I now know. There are some things that you can say for which I am sorry is pale. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can't like, you can't just apologize and expect things to move on. Sometimes you can, um, you can go so out, out of bounds that it is, it is finished literally. And so nothing I could do, you know, while he was alive could, could restore the relationship. And so I eventually just had to learn to live with the fact, okay, I'm just not going to have a relationship. And then I grew to hate, like whenever Father's Day would come around. No, I didn't hate it. I take that back. I didn't know when it would come around. Uh, I would just kind of see all of these posts on Facebook and everyone is happy Father's Day and people telling their mother, happy Father's Day. Like you were the the father for the man who didn't show up for me, you know, and then men are like, um, a mother can't be a father. Like, you know, yeah. so there, there are all of these different fights. And I'm like, listen, I'm a, I, I don't have a, I don't have a dog in this yeah. fight. Like, <laughs> What's going on on Twitter? Like, who's fighting on Twitter? Like, what's happening on Twitter? Gosh, like years later, like a couple of years, like, oh gosh, maybe three, four years after my dad had died, my practice was to do meditation reading every Sunday before I would have to get dressed. And at the time I had a, 
I had a ministry assignment. I was the um, the artistic theologian for a, a United Methodist church plant in downtown Phoenix. And so my practice was every Sunday to uh, do meditation reading. And I was reading a Brene Brown's book, uh, Rising Strong. And uh, in the book, she said something, it's a Sunday. Uh, she says something uh, about forgiving is not, and I was like, oh God, some like something else hokey that they're about to say. So I'm kind of bracing myself, but she says something to the tune of, you know, forgiving is not about extending love or, you know, helping yourself or whatever. It's about acknowledging that this person, they didn't follow your standard, like the expectation, your expectations were unmet. And that I could co-sign on the fact that my expectations were not met. And that is why this anger, this, you know, whatever, you know, it, it persists. And so I really began to wrestle with that. And then all of a sudden I thought of my dad and I'm like, I hadn't thought of him in forever. Like, wait, what is this? But I realized, okay, something is going on here. I'm going to lean into the mystery of this. And so I closed the book and I took a walk and I began to pray. And I said, okay, God, I'm, I'm ready. Okay, we, we can now, let, let, let's talk about this. And so I began to tell my dad's story about being, you know, by the time he was 21, having three children by three different women. He does not have a college degree. He goes into the military and uh, he comes out and, you know, marries my mother. Now he's no prize to any of these women, but somehow my mom ends up winning out and he ends up being super destructive. And, you know, there are, you know, childhood memories that I'm like, I, I wrote all of this differently. And he did not meet my expectation. But let me go back now with my new, my new identity. And my new identity, I say, I forgive everybody what happens in their 20s. Now, that's because I have a lot of mess ups in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I just have grace for people in their 20s. I'm like, I get it. I get it. That is my constitution. And so now I'm like, wait. So if that is now what I believe, then I must forgive him for what he did in his 20s. Okay, let me rewrite his story now that I understand what the 20s is like. And so I begin to retell the story, begin to rewrite his narrative. And I'm crying, but something is like happening as I am writing a, a, a different story uh, for him and what could have happened, you know, if these different things had, had been in place. And when I said, Pop, you know, all is forgiven. And it was a genuine forgiveness. It wasn't hokey. It wasn't hyper-religious. It wasn't, you know, uh, God is divine sovereign insisting if you don't forgive him, I won't forgive you. Like it was none of that. It was, okay, I get it. You were in your twenties and people in their twenties do some stupid yeah. shit. So anybody who's listening to this, everyone who's listening to the podcast, please forgive everybody. <laughs> <laughs> do advanced grace. Cause it's going like, it can, it can be really, really wacky. And so I say, all is forgiven, pop, all is forgiven. And I feel better. And I'm walking by a grocery store and I see people coming out of the grocery store with balloons and flowers. And I'm like, what's the occasion? And then I read one of the balloons and it says, happy Father's Day. And I look up to heaven. I'm like, okay, God, really? Really? That's what we're doing? You have so much flavor and so playful with me. <laughs> but on that day, I was also able to go and um, pull out a, a bag. It was a, a box full of pictures. And all of them were from my dad when he was a child, when he was a student athlete, uh, when he was in the military, just all of these pictures. And, and then pictures of my brothers and me and my nieces and nephew. And, um, and I wasn't, uh, I was laughing. I mean, I was, I was really okay. And so I 
pull some of the best pictures out and I then tell the story and I, I post the pictures. So yeah, uh, I wanted this to happen sooner than it did. It would have been so awesome if I could have gotten to this place when my dad was still alive. That did not happen. I surrender (laughs) to the mysteries of all of the things that I don't know. Right. I just tell the truth about that. Well, your story wasn't, that story wasn't ready for you or you weren't ready to tell that story until that moment. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and again, just speaking to how we're, you know, too often wanting to control the process But I also have to be reminded that I inflicted a serious injury on my dad. Like he hurt me deeply as a child. My formative years, there were some really bad things that I witnessed. And then I I mirrored. (laughs) It's like that shit showed up in my adulthood. And so I'm like, I'm resentful. I'm hateful. I've read all these books. I trace it back to, you know, so it's all, you know, it's all of that. But I, what I did uh, was extremely painful to him to the tune where he was like, like, I'll, I'll go to my grave, you know, hating you and, and it's okay. And I just had to be okay. And, and so again, the story that I tell people is I listen, some stuff, you can't say, I'm sorry. You can't apologize. Uh, for certain things, some things are just um, you do it. It's 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 too much to simply say I'm sorry. So when you're working with someone or you're working with yourself, how do you decide what to keep in the story and what to leave mm. out? If I'm about to tell a story, I consider my audience first, and then I consider like how do I want them to respond? What outcome? What is the um, what? What ultimately am I asking them to do? So I have a signature story that is kind of rooted in in, in writing the book Premature Pleasures. It's kind of like telling the story of me being a twelve year old um, who also looked like I was fifteen or sixteen, and um, and I took a great deal of pride that I didn't look like I was twelve. I could pass for fifteen or sixteen, and I also didn't act like I was twelve. I, you know, I acted like I was fifteen or sixteen, and that's why I had two 17-year-old boyfriends. So when I tell the story of my two 17-year-old boyfriends being a 12-year-old and everything that happened in that space, I have two, maybe two or three different audiences that I will tell that story to. My first audience uh, would be a group of young people. And my takeaway, what I want them to do is to, to say, hey, if you're 12, your boyfriend should not be 17. And if you're 17, your girlfriend should not be 12. Like the end, I have nothing else. Like that's the end of the story. Like I tell you, this. <laughs> that is that's the takeaway. But when I tell the story to adults, and particularly adults who interact with young people, and adults who interact with girls who were like my twelve-year-old self, my takeaway for them is the importance of showing grace and knowing that a twelve-year-old is going to become a twenty-two-year-old, and then they're thirty-two-year-old, and then a fifty-two-year-old. And there is going, there are going to be growth points. And so it is unacceptable for you to not look at that 12 year old and see that everything is going to be okay with her. It is unacceptable for you to decide that this really bad choice that this 12 year old is making right now is going to be the thing that's going to define and destroy her life. I advocate for grace for that 12 year old. I advocate for laughter. I advocate for coming alongside her and telling your own story. Not in a didactic way, but letting her know that you see her, that she's important, that all is well. And 
that, you know, we're going to be okay. So those are my takeaways. Now, what I don't tell anybody about that story is that one of the 17 year old boys, well, actually I do tell them that when both of the boyfriends ended up at my house at the same time, again, it's a crazy story. (laughs) One of them, uh, you know, shows up, the the one who lived in my old neighborhood uh, caught two buses and walked three quarters of a mile to my new house. I thought that would never happen. And, you know, on teacher and service day, it happened. When he sees that, you know, the, the two boyfriends meet, they are, uh, like, okay, you got to choose which one of us you want to be with. Now I'm 12 years old. So I'm looking up at the one at the other, like, I don't know what to do. And so the the one who had traveled with his best friend from the old neighborhood says, I'm going to pick for you. And he walks off the front porch and goes into my house and closes the door. And he leaves me on the front porch with the old, with the, the boyfriend from the new neighborhood. Cool. And so when that boyfriend leave, when he, he goes home, he says, call me when they, they leave and we'll, we'll talk about it further. I, instead of going back into my house, I went across the, uh, like one street over to another sister friend. She's 14 with a 21 year old boyfriend. So she has way more experience than I do. We're cracking up laughing about what's happened. I've been busted. I've been caught, you know, ha ha ha. So, um, I go back to the house and the, the two boys are sitting on the sofa, the, the boyfriend and his best friend. And they're not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. And they say, we're going to leave. Well, they go home, they catch, they walk the three quarters of a mile, catch the two buses back to their side of town. I'm thinking everything is fine. But what I found out when my mother got home was that they had robbed us. And so my mother had to call the police. They were arrested and all of that. Now, here's the part that I don't normally tell. So everybody knows, like when I tell this story, they they know all, all of those details, including the takeaway. I am a 12 year old who did not like I'm I'm now 51 everything worked out. (laughs) You know, I learned. And so I now look at 12 year olds who also like are prematurely developed and I laugh and I'm like, okay, it's going to be fine. Some people have to go through some stuff, but like, we're going to be good. I I, I declare that over their lives when I meet them. What I don't tell anyone is how the boyfriend from the old neighborhood who actually did the robbing, he had been robbing for some time. The first person he robbed was his own mother. He stole her credit card and he was buying me these gifts. I had designer jeans and I had jewelry, a promise ring, and I had a necklace and all of these things because he took his mama's credit card and bought them for me. Wow. I don't tell anyone uh, that I, this guy, you know, he, he eventually, he kept, he couldn't pull his life together and he eventually did some things that were heinous enough financially, like he's steady robbing people, but not with guns or anything. That was the other thing. So he, you know, his, his fiduciary crimes became bigger and bigger and they involved banks. And then finally he ended up going to prison for like 12 years. So six, eight months ago, he runs into one of my, my, my younger cousins and my cousin actually gave this to him. Oh my goodness. And we talked and we were laughing because he remembers the whole scene of, and he even called the old boyfriend's name, which I thought was hilarious because this dude is now approaching 60, but he still remembers being a 17 year old in love with a 12 year old. And he can call the name of the other 17 year old boyfriend that I had. I thought, okay. And then he began to tell me about how, um, how, how special I was and how really, and because they weren't being inappropriate or anything with me. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, like I'm, I'm being sexual with anybody. I'm 12 years old. Like, so that was not the thing. 
And he was very respectful of that. And so we, you know, we, we talked about that. We did not talk about him robbing my mother. We did not talk about him like needing to pay her back. Like, you know, she got her jewelry back or whatever, but it was, there was so much tension that had happened in that space that I don't tell all of those details. They are not in service to what I'm ultimately trying to do. I don't want the, the, the 12 year old to have a 17 year old boyfriend. I don't want the 17 year old to have a 12 year old girlfriend. So I tell the story that is in service to that outcome. I need for adults who are, you know, have any sort of interaction with girls who are like me at 12. I need for them to say great. I need for them to extend grace. I need for them to cast a vision and a blessing over their lives that does not limit them based on what you know are like really bad decisions that they're making in the present. All of those other details are not in service to what my ultimate outcome is. And there are a ton of other details, but I'm ultimately trying to get them to act, to react, to laugh, to extend grace, to expand empathy one story at a time. Right. And I think that's what you mean when you say the story will save all of us because the messages that you're extending. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your process? I know that you're an early morning walker and um, (laughs) I think that's when you do your praying as well. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I get my divine hours prayer time. Yes. Yes. Is that where your story is? Yeah. You know what is so funny? Um, No, my, my divine hours prayer time is where I go back to who I am at my core every day. I return to that place um, because I am surrounded by messages that try to paint me as being insignificant, that try to paint my skills as being unnecessary that try to paint my way of showing up in the world as limited. And every day I have to return to the divine, sovereign, mystical aspects of all things good that reminds me, hey, FYI, you were born for this time to do the good works that were prepared in advance for you to do. You're getting it in. So let's keep going. But that's a daily, um, that's a daily practice. So my stories are what they are. So it's like, I, like I have that on lock. Um, I know how to show up as myself. What I don't all the time know how to do is to trust that I have every reason to exist and to thrive, uh, as everyone else, because there is no lack or scarcity. There are people who are trying to make me believe that, oh my God, you've got to fight for your, or you've got to post X number of times a day. You've got to be on social media. You've got to do this, that, or the other. And I'm like, listen, I am going to be just fine. Everything is working out because I have lived long enough to collect receipts and stories and proof of how it all works out in the end. So the, the morning walks are just about me returning to that space. Everything else is going to work itself out, but I need to be reminded every day that I'm in good hands. God's. I love that you're creating a safe space for yourself so that you can create safe spaces for other people. Yes, there it is. Absolutely. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. I'm creating a safe space for myself so that I can create safe space for other people. That is exactly, that is exactly what it is. Yeah. I want to hear about things that are coming up for you and anything else that you want to talk about? I've been, uh, since the pandemic, I have, well, let me first say that my least favorite way of engaging pre-pandemic was virtually. Um, I moved 
to the West Coast to attend seminary uh, in L.A. because I did not want to take classes online. I, I, I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to have the full experience. And so when the pandemic hit, I first wanted to believe that it wasn't going to be long mm-hmm. <laughs> and that I could just you know, take, take longer naps and take longer walks, which I did. Like, you know, when we were first putting shelter in place, all of that was true. But when they're like, no, you know, buckle up, like it's going to be a minute. I knew that I needed to continue to create and to curate spaces for, you know, stories, my stories and the stories of others. And so I began to produce a virtual faith and adult storytelling series called Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine at Vespers. And uh, in that space, it's like 45 minutes to an hour. I will I have a jazz musician. Uh, my, my three eternal loves are Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine. I have found a way to <laughs> mail them. <laughs> I mail them. They all go together. Uh, and Vespers is uh, the evening prayer. That's evening prayer time. And so we, we go live uh, every Saturday at 5.30 p.m., and open with a jazz musician. Um, she's my minister of flavor and musical vibes, Lynette Barber, an amazing uh, local musician here in the, uh, the Triangle area. And we stick typically with the classics, like more bebop. Nina Simone is a patron saint mm-hmm. uh, for Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine and some Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. And so just, you know, a lot of the, uh, the you know, jazz standards. And then I open with, you know, a story and kind of set up who is my featured storyteller. And the only, you know, thing that I, I, I let people know is that, you know, we tell stories to adults, for adults, uh, stories that are told by adults, for people with a developed adult context. And that, you know, seven-year-olds have story time and now so do adults and no apologies are ever issued for what comes in that space. And so it really is uh, a place where if you have to, if you are the kind of adult who is only comfortable with stories that a seven-year-old can also hear. Right. That ain't what I do. (laughs) (laughs) But for that reason, I have this amazing, eclectic group of congregants, uh, people who, who, uh, who I I call them like y'all in the virtual pews. Uh, They come out and they hear all of my madness, my mania, and the ways that I show up in the world reverently irreverent, but always hopeful that everything is working out bigger and better than we know, and encouraging others to lean into the mystery and to look back, to lament what is not going well, to offer a prophetic hope. Um, one of my favorite writers, uh, he's a German theologian, Walter Brueggemann, Dr. Walter Brueggemann, wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination revolutionized the way that I just see so many different things. And he was the first person to talk about casting a prophetic hope and uh, the need to to not let hope be a cerebral thing. Hope is not a cerebral thing. Hope is created by speech. And I think that the best speech is a story. And so in every story, that's where our solutions are found. That's also where our hope is found, that everything is working out bigger and better than we know. And we have to continue to cast that prophetic hope. Uh, And then energizing memory is the other thing. Uh, that we do at Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine. And I always pull in just something that happened in the past, a picture, a video, something that happened that lets me know that it has not been all bad. There are some sweet things. There are some funny things that have happened and will continue to happen. I have every reason to continue to show up and to trust that all is working out bigger and better than we know. And then finally, we talk about giving, but not giving in terms of money, We talk about giving grace. 
We talk about giving space, giving room for things to happen, giving do-overs, giving contracts. So we're like, you know, I, I expand their understanding of giving so that it is inclusive of everyone. It's not about just um, what you have monetarily. We all are uh, have something to give, uh, give time, you know, give do-overs. I spend time at Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine with, again, adults talking about all of that after we've done our story time and then sending them out into the world, prayerfully contagious with good things so that we can uh, enjoy a love pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I would love for anyone else who can handle, you know, people with a developed adult context. (laughs) (laughs) If you have your children or your grandchildren around that day and you want to participate, okay, just put your earbuds in, like put your your earbuds in. Uh, Like this is not... uh, Yeah. So just like, you know, protected in that way. And and it's not gratuitous or anything like that. So Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine at Vespers, uh, every Saturday streams on my YouTube channel, um, Alexis Roan. And gosh, the, the end of May 22nd, as a part of Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine, we're having a big uh, celebration, a virtual celebration of the 20th anniversary of the release of Premature Pleasures, mm. which again is the anniversary of me showing up on the uh, in the universe officially as a person who tells stories and dresses the truth and story. Happy anniversary of that. Thank that, is, you. that feels really Thank significant. You. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, so I am not a person who goes to church as an adult. I did as a child, but not as an adult. And I love Jesus, jazz, and dessert wine. You are my target folk. Like I'm telling you, the the people who went to church and they love the church kind of full. Okay. Y'all have places to go. There are people who are doing it. I have no interest or desire to mimic that virtually. I want to show up reverently, irreverent, unapologetic, and make room for other people to do the absolute same thing. I had a um, a few weeks ago, I, I was joking about one of my sister friends. Um, she's a master storyteller. She's engaged to a pastor. And uh, he loves Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine too. And he said, I'm really surprised that no one from the church has like attacked what Alexis is doing. And I said to him, I was like, well, they hear Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine and they're thinking that Jesus is naked. And so they're just like, <laughs> no, get away from me with that naked Jesus. So they're not going to tune in anyway. So I'm like, you know, everyone has a place to go. The seven-year-olds have their story time. The hyper-religious uh, conservative folks who need to G- who need Jesus uh, and their religious tradition to be imaged a certain place. They have, a, they have somewhere to go. And now my reverently irreverent adults also have a place to go. So you're welcome. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I just, it feels, I feel like it, because it's such a open and judgment free zone, I feel like my own approach to religion and spirituality, I can feel still comfortable in that space. It doesn't match exactly, but I just, it expands my mind. It grounds me. I feel like my heart opens up. And so thank you for that work. And and thank you to the people who make it with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I so appreciate that. It is a a labor of love. I insist on engaging my bliss and doing those things that 
bring me immense amounts of joy and making room and more room for that. And then inviting other people, you know, into that space. So there are some things that, you know, people would want me to engage and to do. And I always have to ask like, okay, how does this feel? Does this feel good to be part of? And if it does, I'm like, all right, let's do it. Uh, if it doesn't, then um, I'm like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll pass and, and, you know, until, you know, when, whenever. But the universe is filled with so many amazing things, amazing people. And the best way to access all of that amazingness is to create more and more and more and more and more judgment-free zones. Uh, and for us to show up with our stories, because there is an audience and there are folks who are like, I did not know that until you told me. Right. So thank you for, for telling me. Yeah. Alexis, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap up? No, just to say thank you for the amazing work that you are doing and for this platform for artists to be able to stand on their soapbox. Uh, I am careful to honor all of the ways that people have attempted to diminish me uh, as a woman, as a woman minister, as a black woman, you know, just all of the ways that I have. I don't necessarily check all of these other boxes, but the one box that I do check is that like I am, uh, I practice fidelity to, you know, to all of the goodness that is within me and I don't hoard it. Um, I share it and I share it in a way that's uh, real and right for me in a way that I hope gives people permission to do the same, not just for themselves, but for others. So I just, um, I, I, I believe that I'm doing more than I can see. And I trust that. I just want to be sure I'm having a good time. Too. <laughs> right. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for this soapbox. Yes. This is awesome. Thank you, Tamara. I appreciate you. You are so welcome. Do you know what's happening with Artist Soapbox? Have your ears missed our original scripted audio fiction? Well, come on and listen to the Declaration of Love Anthology, The New Colossus, and The Master Builder. Get up to dates on patreon.com slash artistsoapbox and become a patron of the podcast. Please see the links in the show notes and at artistsoapbox.org. You can always reach out to artistsoapbox at gmail.com. Stay in touch. Thanks, friends.